Defining moments. Maybe, maybe you've had a defining moment or two in your life. Maybe you've had a lot of moments that you would see as, as defining moments. These moments where you kind of come to a, uh, maybe you'd say a, a T in the road, and you go this way or this way, but the option to keep going the same, or even go backward, right? Uh, but the option to keep going the same exact direction you were going just isn't there. These defining moments that, that change who we are. Where the person that we are on one side of it is not the person that we are on the other side. What are your defining moments? I'm sure there are things that come to mind. Maybe it's uh, career-oriented, a job you got or a job you didn't get. Maybe it's family-oriented, something to do with your, your kids or a spouse or a lack of spouse for whatever reason. Maybe it's school-oriented or whatever it may be. There's any number of different defining moments that play into who we are and who we become. One of those moments for me was uh, in, it was my freshman year of high school, and I was wrestling at a tournament in David City, Nebraska, at their Catholic high school there. And uh, it was a big tournament, lots of good teams there, always really good competition. And uh, I was a freshman wrestling at a weight class that was mostly populated by juniors and seniors. And so as a 152-pound freshman, um, I wasn't exactly seated in the tournament, okay? I was not, uh, I was not one of the guys who got one of the, the seeds for the bracket. And the rest of us that didn't get seated just got drawn in. And so, consequently, um, you know, we got what we, what we got. Well, um, in this particular tournament, there were more, it was just a 16-man bracket. Double elimination, pretty standard kind of a bracket. And, but in this tournament, there were 17 teams, and... Um, in our weight class, every team had an entry, which a 16-man bracket doesn't hold 17 people. And so, two of us got the great privilege of being a part of what sometimes is called a, a pigtail bracket. We had a single elimination match to get into the tournament. And my day ended before it began. And... Uh, it was, it was embarrassing and a little depressing. Uh, I had to call my parents who were on their way to the tournament because usually my weight class was kind of the middle of the first round, not the first match of the day. So they had a little bit of cushion uh, with time to get there and, uh, well, they thought they did. And I was out, so I had to try to get a hold of them and let them know that don't bother paying the admission fee to get in because I'm not going to be wrestling anymore today. And uh, I can't even remember if they went ahead and came or not. But what I did is I went and found their weight room and laid down on a bench press. And uh, there may or they may have been a tear to shed. But um, there also was a lot of internal conversation happening where I, I realized I don't want this feeling ever again. And I knew that there were a few options that I had in front of me. The one option was just kind of finish out the season and then quit and go play basketball next year. Because I had thought about going out for basketball. Uh, as you can see from my height, it was probably a good idea I didn't, but I'd thought about it. Another option would be just stay out and keep trying and, or keep, you know, just kind of resign myself to being okay. I, won, I was winning more matches than I was losing and 
just kind of resign myself to that and be the kid that's just out to, you know, just be a part of a team and have a little fun. And nothing against those kids. As, as a coach, it's, those kids are really nice to have around because they have good attitudes and have a lot of fun. Um, but the third option was um, do something to get better and work to make sure that this doesn't happen again because you're winning those matches instead of losing those matches. And that was in my like, athletic career, I guess you'd call it. Um, that was a defining moment for me. It made a big difference in, in the way that that played out over the next four years to where I was able to have some pretty good success in the sport. But I look back and I, that moment was miserable. <laughs> it was hard, it was uncomfortable, but it was a moment that kind of changed the traje- trajectory of where, where that was going. Now, that's a silly example because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, um, wins and losses of high school sports, um, hopefully they don't throw rocks at me for saying this, they don't matter, really, in the grand scheme of a person's life. Um, Now, there's a lot of character development that happens in the midst of those wins and losses, like the moment that I had. Um, That was a character-building moment for me. Uh, But... At the end of the day, that was a, a silly one. But there, there are a lot of those moments that aren't, aren't so silly. There are a lot of moments like that that build into us something. What are your defining moments? There's a lot of ways we can talk about this. Uh, a lot of metaphors that can be used and things like that. But um, I know something that helps me in when it comes to things like this, is, is a story. So I'm going to take one out of the, the Jesus teaching playbook, and I'm going to tell you a story about a young Jewish man named Shaul. Now, Shaul was, uh, was a son of two Jewish parents. One of them was, was a Pharisee. And so Shaul was, was a part of the the synagogue classes uh, from the time he was, well, probably from before it was time to be old enough to go. Uh, being a preacher's kid, I understand that. I went to weeks of church camp that I was not of age for as a, as a kid, just running along with my dad. Uh, but, you know, as, as a Pharisee's kid, he probably uh, was, was in on some things at a younger age than many of, his, many of his peers. He was the son of a Pharisee, but they didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived a long way away from there. And so although he had a, um, a very Jewish upbringing, he was also in a place, in a, in a city, where he was able to be exposed to the, the greater world around him, to the, the Greek philosophies, the Epicureanism, and all these other isms that they had um, floating around as far as uh, philosophies and ways of thinking and ways of processing the world around them. And so he was able to be exposed to this Greek thought while also... Uh, also being exposed pretty heavily to his, his Jewish teachings and the history of his, of his people. On top of that, he was not only a Jew ethnically, but he was also officially a Roman. So he was able to have the, the perks of Roman citizenship. That there was a lot of things that a Roman citizen could do that a non-citizen could not do. Or things that could be done to a non-Roman citizen that could not be done to a Roman one. Well, our, our young man, Shaul, 
continued to learn and grow. And even though he was taught a, a trade, it was pretty evident that his, his strengths were uh, a little more academic. And so uh, mom and dad shipped him off to go, uh, you might say, study abroad or maybe sent him to Bible college, however you want to think about it. Uh, but they sent him to Jerusalem to learn from one of the great rabbis named uh, Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is one who is in your Bible, okay? You'll find him in the book of Acts. He's actually one of the, um, one of the teachers, one of the Jewish um, teachers that is actually more favorable toward, toward the church. He has a little more um, leniency toward the church where he wasn't going to actively um, seek them out to, to persecute them. But being, um, being able to study under this guy, Gamaliel, uh, was, was an opportunity that Shaul had that was pretty, pretty incredible, and if you're thinking timeline, this would put him as a contemporary to, to Peter and John and Jesus, okay? So he's, he's growing up in this environment where he is able to learn from one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history, Gamaliel. But not only him, I'm sure there were, there were probably others being discipled by, by Gamaliel, but as, as they were, Shaul continued to, to just surpass Everybody else. If everybody else was here, Shaul was going to be here. If everyone else had this much memorized, he was going to have this much memorized. He was progressing far beyond the rest of them. He knew, he knew the law, and he continued to grow in his knowledge of the law, and he was zealous for it. And because of that, he gets an invite. I don't know if you've ever been invited to something that like, you weren't quite... Um, you weren't quite on that level yet, okay? You didn't meet all the requirements, but somebody's invited. Hey, you know what? You're getting there. Why don't you come along? Why don't you come along for this? And so Shaul gets invited to be in on some of the goings-on of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the ruling group of the, of the Jewish people. Well, one day, there's this, there's this man who's brought into the Sanhedrin meeting. He's been arrested for, for speaking about this Jesus of Nazareth guy. He's been preaching about him. And so they arrest him and they bring him in. And he stands before them and they give him a chance to make his defense. And he begins talking about, about Abraham and Moses. And I just, I just pictured this, this group of men just kind of looking at him going, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm on board with that. All right, okay, yeah. As he's talking about their, their forefathers, and these people who have gone before them and, and the good things they did. But then, then he kind of shifts a little bit and starts talking about how they, they rejected, how, how their fathers rejected Moses. They rejected the law. How they, they, went and, um, they went and worshiped other gods. They didn't obey the law. And even then, I'm not sure that the Pharisees in that room would have been angry yet. In fact, they may have still been nodding their heads like, yeah, that's what we're all about. Because you see, the Pharisees were a group that started with the idea of we're under, we're under this oppression. We are not a free people. You know why we're not a free people? Because we're not doing what God says we need to be doing. And so the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees start this group in order to help people to learn the law, and to obey the law. 
It's a noble task. Now, we, can, we could have a whole sermon series on just the ways that they screwed up that task. <laughs> okay, we could, we could talk a lot about the ways the Pharisees got it wrong, but their goal their goal wasn't really all that bad. And so when, uh, when this guy is standing there telling them, like, yeah, your father's really messed it up, they're probably saying, yes, that's the thing we're trying to fix. But then, but then he turns on him and he says, and you guys are just like your fathers. I don't know if any of you have ever had someone make a comment like that to you of uh, maybe, maybe you got a sketchy uncle, I don't know, and, you gotta, and one of your teachers says, you're just like your uncle, I don't know, something like that. Maybe, maybe you've heard those words, and I, I said that as a joke, but if you hear those words that way, it probably doesn't feel like it. Maybe you know the sting of a comment like that. But he tells me, you're just like your fathers before you. You're not obeying the law the way God would have. And just like they killed the prophets, you just killed the Son of God. So they take him. They drag him outside the city. And they throw big rocks at him until he dies. The Sanhedrin stones this man because of his faith in Jesus. Well... Of course, if you're going to murder somebody, you don't want to get blood on your coat, right? So they took their coats off. And they laid, and of course, I mean, full range of motion and all that when you're throwing. And so they laid them at the feet of a young man named Shaul. Or if you just transliterate that into Greek, it's Saul. Saul of Tarsus. You would know him by the way that he... Uh, Science his letters, it's Paul, the Greek form of that name. Saul has this defining moment at the murder of Stephen. He has this moment where he stands, he stands at this crossroads where, where he can go this way and he could he could say, guys, this isn't this isn't what God wants. He could talk to these guys who had been rabbis longer than he'd probably been alive and, and tell them, this, isn't, this, this surely isn't what the Lord would ask of us. He could sit back and say nothing and just let them do their thing. But even when you're at a crossroads like this, when, you are, when you're in this defining moment, passivity has its own, has its own repercussions. But he didn't choose that either. He looked at what they had done, and he took steps in that direction and said, you know what? That was good. We should do this more often, guys. And he began persecuting and ravaging the church in Jerusalem. He began arresting Christians and bringing them in to be tried, and many of them murdered. So the church naturally scattered, okay? And actually, it's kind of funny because even before, um, 
his conversion that we're going to talk about here in a minute, Saul, uh, Saul accomplishes uh, what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Uh, he's already accidentally accomplishing Jesus's mission here. So in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, yeah, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so so far, the church has just been in Jerusalem, this tight-knit community of Jewish people in Jerusalem. Okay, and so uh, when, when Saul starts persecuting him, all of them, they, take, they go from Jerusalem, and they go into the next phase here of Judea and Samaria. So they start uh, extending their reach outside of, outside of Jerusalem. So Saul's already accidentally accomplishing uh, what Jesus is wanting, is wanting done. When... Uh, on that, on that note, uh, J.W. McGarvey, uh, a commentator on Acts, he says, uh, When the church in Jerusalem had been scattered abroad, Saul, Saul doubtlessly, doubt, doubtless thought that he had effectually destroyed the hated sect. But the news soon began to filter back from various quarters that the scattered disciples were establishing congregations in every direction. And so Saul comes to a kind of a second defining moment here. So he's already, he's already, he started here, and when Stephen is, is murdered, he takes this step. And so he's now in this second defining moment where the church is, um, has, has scattered. And so does he sit back and he says, well, at least I tried. And give up? Does he just stay focused on Jerusalem and say, you know what, really, as long as we can keep the holy city pure, maybe, maybe that's enough. Or does he chase him down and go after him? And that is the step that Saul takes. He continues persecuting the church. And so he goes to the high priest. And he asks for, he asks for letters to be t- that he could take to the synagogues to be able to tell them, hey, you, you guys need to hand over your Christians. Or the way, those who, they, they called it the way. You need to hand over those belonging to the way. They need to come with me bound so that we can try them in Jerusalem. Saul's, uh, Saul's will is not deterred here. In fact, the uh, second half of McGarvey's quote says that one less persistent than Paul might now have been despaired of success in suppressing a faith which had thus far been promoted by every attack made upon it, and which seemed to gather renewed life from apparent destruction. But he had a will that rose to higher resolve as obstacles multiplied before it. That whole, the going gets tough, the tough get going, and Saul was tough. And so he, he got permission, and he took papers, and he was on his way to Damascus, where we get... Saul's kind of third defining moment here. They're traveling on this desert road, and all of a sudden, there's just, bam, there's this bright light that shines. He gets knocked to the ground, and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. And Saul Saul has a pretty appropriate response. Uh, Who are you, sir? (laughs) 
Most of your translations probably say Lord. It is the same word as Lord, but Lord can be used in either of those, either of those ways, uh, either talking about someone as God, Lord, or talking about someone as just that, you know, respectful sir. And uh, he probably, if he knew it was God, he probably wouldn't have asked, who are you? So, uh, who are you, sir? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Go into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Well, Saul gets up. The bright light is gone. And he's blind. So his companions, who are just confused and weirded out, they don't know what to do. So they, just, they take him into the city, and he goes to the house of a man named Judas. And there he fasts, and he prays for three days. He's not the first person in the Bible to have three days of, of darkness fasting and praying. Uh, Jonah's a good example of that. Uh, you think about the belly of a fish. Um, it would have been dark. We have words recorded of him praying and uh, probably don't want to eat anything in there. And uh, <laughs> salt water is not exactly good if you're thirsty. So he would have been fasting and praying for three days also. Uh, Jesus rises again on the third day, right? He spends those days in darkness, not eating anything. Saul's, in, Saul's got company where he's at here. He spends three days in dark fasting and praying. Then there's a man named Ananias who enters the scene. Now, Ananias receives this vision from Jesus, and Jesus appears to him and he says, Hey, Ananias! And he says, Oh, hey, Lord. Yeah, what can I do? And uh, Jesus says to him, Hey, so um, I need you to go over to Straight Street. Okay, so um, go to Straight Street, and uh, there's to the house of Judas. Okay, that's, that's his house. Now, there's a guy there from Tarsus named Saul, and I want you to uh, put your hands on him and help him uh, have, be able to see again. He, I blinded him, but yeah, you can, you can do that. And, uh, and Ananias' response is just kind of like, yeah, so I, I know you're like all-knowing and all that kind of stuff, but in case you forgot, do you know who this guy is? He's the one trying to kill people like me. He's got authority to do it too. Maybe we should just leave him blind. He doesn't say that, but I, I get that impression that he's probably thinking maybe we should just leave him alone and let him just kind of quietly go away. But instead, Jesus, Jesus tells him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went. He entered the house, laid his hands on Saul, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened again. So Ananias comes to him, tells him what Jesus had told him. The scales fall off of his eyes. He's baptized. And then, now that the, the darkness and the sorrow has passed, all that is completed, he takes and he eats. And then he goes to the synagogue and blows everyone's mind. 
He starts preaching, and people are like, wait, isn't this the, yeah, that's the guy that, but he's now, what's happening here? Like, he just does, they don't even, it's hard to process, because this is the guy who's supposed to be arresting people who are following this Jesus guy, and now he's proclaiming this Jesus guy, and they can't argue with him, because he knows the Jewish scriptures better than they do. And because of the risen Jesus, the scales had fallen off of his eyes. He was healed, but the scales had fallen off of his eyes in a more uh, metaphorical way, you might say. That prior to that, he didn't, he didn't really see. Jesus talks about this. The prophets kind of use this language of, you, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. And Saul was one who had eyes, but he didn't, he didn't see it. And finally, the scales fall from his eyes, and all of a sudden, he sees it. And he goes into the synagogue and tells people, guys, this is what it's been all about all along. Jesus tells them, uh, you know, it's hard to kick against the goads. Okay, so the goads are, you know, cattle prod, trying to get an animal to move in the same direction as what everything's trying to go here. And when, a, when an animal would kick against the goads, the animal is the only one getting hurt in that scenario. And Saul's been kicking against the goads. God's trying to move things in a certain direction, and Saul just keeps taking these steps this way. And finally, his eyes are open. He sees, oh, that's the way this has been going all along. And so he goes the other way. The, the Bible word for this is repent. Okay, so he's, he's been going this way, and it literally just means to turn around and go the other way. His life turns because of the risen Jesus. Because of an encounter with the risen Christ, Saul's life changes. It's never the same. This was a defining moment for him. This was his resurrection difference. We came in contact with, with the risen Jesus. This was his defining moment. What are your defining moments? Maybe it's the moment you decided to become a Christian. Maybe it's any number of, of other moments. I think every moment has the potential to be a defining moment. And in some ways, every moment is a defining moment. Anytime you choose this instead of this, you're, you're taking a step in a particular direction. The fact that you came to church this morning, okay, or if you're watching online, that's, that's a step. That's a step in a particular direction. Or maybe you, you fought God the whole way, and you're like, I don't even want to be here. I'm just going to like check out. I'm going to sit on my phone the whole time. Like maybe, that, maybe that's a step in a certain direction too. We're constantly taking steps either towards or away from the risen Jesus. And so in those, we need to consider and be conscious of Christ and the resurrection that makes such a big difference difference. I would be uh, in error if I didn't point out the, the reality of what, what's, what Paul would later write in 1 Timothy as the reason that he 
received this mercy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just praises. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like in light of the transformation that Christ accomplished in his life through his resurrection, through his saving power, he just can't help but break out into, into worship. But again, he, he says he received mercy for a reason. That when, when, when we look at him, we see Jesus Christ displaying his perfect patience. And so for us, we, we look at Saul and Paul, and we can learn... They were never too far gone to be changed by the risen Jesus. You're never too far gone. You've never taken too many steps this way to be able to be called back to Jesus. You're never too far gone. Or, or maybe you, um, you still would consider yourself you know, a, a Christian or whatever, and so maybe you're, maybe you're still facing this way, but you're actually taking steps like this, uh, where, where you're, oh yeah, I'm still, I'm still pointing in the right direction. Well... Kind of, uh, but, but we keep taking steps, and probably, if, if we're honest, it probably looks more like some kind of weird shuffle thing uh, as we walk back and forth. Um, but, but the reality is, is that you're never too far gone to be changed by the risen Jesus. Whatever you have done that's been a defining moment for you, whatever that has been done to you that's been a defining moment, those hinge points in our lives, you are not too far gone to be changed by the risen Jesus but it might be painful. We, uh, in our, we've been going through a book in our staff meetings on Tuesday mornings, and uh, in the book was a quote from a really big book I've never read. Uh, but <laughs> the, the book is uh, the brothers uh, Karamazov. I don't know if anyone has read that or if I even said that right. But, um, but the, the quote says this, Love in practice is, harsh, is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Now, now, Paul would look back at his, his moment on the road to Damascus and say, that was the most loving thing that Christ ever did for me. And you know what he did? He threw him on the ground and blinded him. Like, that's what he did. Like, he threw him on the ground and shined a bright light in his face and yelled at him for a minute. Like, that's, I mean, basically what happens. It's not, it's not this like, you know, Saul, it'd be really nice if you would just stop being mean to me. Like, it, that wasn't it. Like Jesus throws him on the ground and blinds him for three days until he straightens up. And so sometimes change 
is painful. Sometimes it, it feels like that moment when I was on a, on a bench in the David City Aquinas weight room. I was like, man, this hurts. This is horrible. And then you look back and say, this was really good for me. But the risen Jesus gives us hope in those moments. That the dead can rise. That, the, um, that whatever it is that feels final in your life doesn't have to be. Whatever it is that you feel like, that's just who I am now. After that happened to me, that's just who I am now. It doesn't have to be. There's hope to walk in newness of life. And so I would ask you this morning, what are your defining moments? And I would encourage you as, as more moments come to you, as they will, I would encourage you that your steps would be toward Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can hope in the person of Jesus. Father, we, we thank you that uh, in him we can, we can see your love and your care for us. And God, I pray that we would not, we would not resist, but that we, would, uh, that we would embrace your love. Father, I pray that you would um, change us, conform us to be more and more like, like Jesus. And allow us to be uh, not kicking against the goads, but going the same direction as you're going. I thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you for his example as one who, who did everything he could to be against you. And God, as I look at that, it gives me hope. I pray that that can give each and every one of us hope this morning as well. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.